This is our 166, and I'm Kim Howard. In Barbados, we like to say that trouble don't set out like rain. And at the start of 2020, we simply had no idea what a time we were in for. But as March moved on to April and we started to adjust, one of the big questions we had was whether there would be a crop over. But just what is crop over? At its simplest, it's our annual festival, and it refers to the end of the sugarcane crop. In Barbados, we've been growing sugarcane since the 1600s and using it to produce sugar, molasses, and rum. So for more than 400 years, sugarcane has been the main agricultural crop on the island. For the first 200 of those years, British colonialists used enslaved people, both directly from West Africa and their enslaved Barbados-born descendants, to provide free labor. But back to the pandemic and crop over. So while crop over devotees were going through serious withdrawal and wondering whether we would be out of lockdown in time to celebrate this annual summer festival, I began to wonder about something else. When exactly did crop over begin? Because I remembered hearing that crop over started in the 1970s. But if we've been having sugarcane crops for more than 400 years, surely we couldn't only have just started to celebrate the end of the crop as recently as that, could we? I started looking for information with the hope of getting a better understanding of how the sweetest summer festival that brings thousands of Barbadians out of their homes and visitors from all over the world to party across the island, sundown to sunup for weeks from June to August, came to be. This led me to the Faculty of Culture, Creative and Performing Arts at the University of the West Indies here in Barbados. I spoke to Dr. Marcia Burroughs. So Marcia, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to our 166. Thank you for inviting me and congratulations on this marvelous enterprise. She's a lecturer in the faculty, but more importantly, she's my former history teacher from secondary school. So I wanted to see if she could point me in the right direction. So tell me, how did you move from being a history teacher at Queen's College, to being a woman who researched, being, was focused on researching Barbadian culture? Oh, <laughs> so I, I always struggled, I think, because I had an absolute love for history and an absolute curiosity about culture, but I was also a theater person. And I did finally go to do my master's in theater. That's why I went to the University of Warwick to do my master's and the, the only program they offered at the time which combined theater was a new program, very new, called Arts, Education, and Cultural Studies. Mm. And I remember being interviewed by the person who became my supervisor, and he said to me, so is it your intention to go on to a PhD? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, okay. And then, then six months, he kept saying to me, tell me about the cultural histories of Barbados. Write them out for me, write them out for me. And I began to write. And as I wrote, I found myself asking questions. Yeah, why is there a piano in every school in Barbados? Mm. Why isn't the top band in the schools in Barbados? Why do we only learn this form of education? Why was this form of education and it's the late 20th century? Why are we still struggling with that? And at that time, having top band in the church was unheard of. Steel pan in the church was unheard of. Matter of fact, and I've written about this, 
both churches kept as far as they could from crop over. Mm. The church that perhaps embraced crop over in the beginning was the Roman Catholic Church, Monsignor Harcourt Blackett. The Anglican Church kept them far, kept far. And then by the end of the 20th century, there were changes in the narratives. So I find myself trying to explain to him that we're going through process of changes, etc., etc. And at that moment, I thought the only way I can explore this is by pursuing a PhD, which wasn't of my interest <laughs> when I first came. The PhD then became a, a lovely blend. I was able to build my skills as a historian because my first degree was history and law, put the law side a bit, <laughs> but definitely the history. And then what I was exploring within the masters in theater and within film and within textual analysis and bring it in to a PhD for the curiosity of how, how can I work this? How, how, what questions that am I asking? And then I was able, when I returned to Barbados, I did return to Queen's College. Mm -hmm. I did teach for two years and then I was awarded the Commonwealth Scholarship. Ah. And I returned to the University of Warwick with my professor there sitting saying, yes, now we can begin. <laughs> and he, yeah, he says, are you continuing those questions of exploration? I said, yes. Spaces of identity with a special look at this island of Barbados and what are we and how and what are some of the key narratives and there are several key narratives that I explored and one of them was crop over. So the National Cultural Foundation who's responsible for I guess administering crop over they describe it as a three-month-long festival of Barbadian music, arts, food, culture, and so much more. Yes, marketing. <laughs> well, that's my area, so I understand it. And that the festivities end with a grand carnival parade known as Kadumandi. And that's straight from their website. A current website? Yes. Okay. And we call it Cropover because it's always been linked with the end of the sugarcane harvest. Yeah. So how do you, as a cultural professional, define Cropover? Okay, when I began um, to explore the histories and narratives of crop over, it seems that at some point in time in the late, as far as we know at the moment, although I see the NCF website has come up with an earlier date and I have not yet explored where they source this earlier date. Mm -hmm. The date that I am aware of and I can only speak to at this time is 1782. And it's not because it began then, it be, it's because on... Um, a scholar found a reference to this thing called Harvest Home occurring on Newton Plantation in Christchurch. Mm -hmm. And he made a note, 1782. It doesn't mean it began then. It meant that, and at this time, we do not really know when it began. I do not know that when it began that I can speak to that. But there then there was a, a novel that came out a little later, middle of the 19th century, Creoliana. And in Creoliana, there is that moment when the um, one of the protagonists says, you know, I can't wait until there's a crop over and she's a female. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So we start to pick up, pick up, pick up from that. Therefore, this is what I would say. It seems at some point in time, there was emerging of two cultural practices. Barbados was fully enslaved, full, a full enslaved plantation force there. Um, 
the enslaved Africans would have been bringing their practices over or in their minds bringing their practices. They're not lifting them up and bringing computers, <laughs> etc. Um, through, through the process of enslavement, they would have been brought to the plant to plantations, and we know what happens. What happens is, yes, they are accorded the label of property, chattel. Yes, they are accorded the labor of the label of being inhuman. And unfortunately, many of the travel writers who pass through Barbados say that say that these individuals have no souls, which was also a popular. Thing of of that period of enlightenment, the question of Hegel saying, you know, Africa didn't cross into history. So they're looking at a mass of people. Most of the visitors who come through don't even write about enslaved people in Barbados. Many of the books of the 18th and 19th century speak to plants because at that time, <laughs> the scholarly practice was natural history. You would not believe how many coconut trees you would see in one book. Look at Sloan. <laughs> oh, by the way, created the British Museum. So it's all about plants, 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 buildings, buildings, buildings. Rarely is it about the about these enslaved people of African and African descent, African and African descent, and what were their cultural practices? There was one guy very early who, ironically, no joke, got locked up in a jail, and whilst he went back to England, was in jail. He wrote his book. A history of Barbados, history oh. of the island of Barbados. And it's been celebrated and commemorated as one of the first very serious works of history within the British West Indies, within the colonized space of the West Indies. And he talks about observing these African peoples and saying, you know, as soon as they get off the boat, he noticed some would go find trees and they cut the tree down. And they made drums. Mm. And then he talked about the piercing, loud, hellish, heelish behavior. And I'm I'm saying hallelujah, hallelujah, because if it's piercing, loud, and heathenish, then it don't sound European. Right. Then there are no Eurocentric constructs there. There's they are reproducing. If you're an artist, the the drummer must drum, the dancer must dance, the singer must sing, the playwright must write. And he captured for me early indications of the humanities of the of the enslaved people. And notice I say enslaved. We try to move away from just saying they're slaves by emphasizing enslaved. We are kind of trying to bring to the fore the construct that slavery as an institution is a working, seriously working institution with ideologies to guarantee labor for a plantation, which is being a working institution to guarantee profits for not only the sugar barons in Barbados, but the ones in England and sugar barons wherever they were, are in the empire. Enslaved individuals, as soon as they got off the boat, or maybe later on, we found that they're cutting trees. And then some of the Individuals here um, write about practices they notice. Priests are really helpful when it comes to research. But this particular preach, uh, Hugh Griff, uh, Griffith Hughes wrote about, he noticed that they would go through the grasses and pick the beads. And then he noticed that sometimes he says ethnic groups would pick particular color beads and they would grab get together and they would dance he noticed that when someone died um 
they might have to bury the body immediately, literally under the house. But on a Sunday, on a Sunday, they would gather a hay, they'll howl, they'll mm. scream, they'll dance, keep lots of noise, etc. And so if you're tracking it, you say, yeah, look, humanity, they are reenacting rituals of humanity. All human beings, wherever they are in the world, they're rituals of life and they're rituals of death. Indeed. So by spotting that then, we then track it through. So let me begin again. What I'm saying is that scholarship tends to begin crop over from the point of view of the European, mm -hmm. the point of view of the Eurocentric construct of culture. So you will then find over and over again, constantly published, there is no culture. I've they heard that. have no culture. I've heard they that in the 21st it. century. They write it down in the 18th century. They have no culture. They are seeing, if they are physically in the space, they're seeing plants, they're into coconut <laughs> trees. <laughs> I, I really invite you to go look. They're looking for natural history. Oh, and by the way, there are these machines that do these things and we don't really care about them. We cut their legs off. We cut their arms off. We cut their hair off. We don't really care. We say they're not human. And by the way, we go spend most of our time when we're in Barbados with the sugar barons and their lovely big plantations where we can journey out to their plantations and eat marvelous food. Drink Madeira. And drink Madeira. And the individuals serving them become invisible because by the way, they're not human. So, Constantly, and this is one of the narratives that I have argued in print that we're still struggling with today in Barbados, there was this collective agreement of they're not human, collective agreement of the only humans here really are those who are the sugar banners and their family, those who have European descent. Fruit said it as well. He said there are no humans there. He said it. And he really meant there are no humans there. And when he wrote his The English in the West Indies. So if you f begin your constructs of festivals, and many scholars do, you begin your narrative of carnival from Italy, from Europe. Um, when the humans come, as far as the scholars are concerned, that's when the Europeans come and they bring human practices. Let's begin there. So sometimes in our narratives of carnival, we still begin, okay, you know, when the French came, read anything about the history of carnival in Trinidad. The French came until Liverpool wrote and said, you know, these Africans came with their own practices. Back to crop over. We know that because they're rituals of commemorating life, death, Rituals of celebration, baptism. Um, they may not have called it baptism, but hey, if you've seen Kunta Kinte, mm -hmm. if you've seen Black Panther, the practice of raising the trail. There are certain moments in human life that will be celebrated. We know that Monday to Saturday is going to be difficult for the enslaved because they literally are working from sunrise to sunset. And amazing stuff has to happen when it's crop time because they're working 18 hours a day the sugar must be made. So Sunday becomes a, fo a focus of activity, a really a focus of activity, when everything you couldn't do for six days happens there. However, there are other holidays. You see, the Europeans now need to celebrate their thing called Christmas, right. which was there. I'm not, I'm not being sacrilegious here. Europe would have come with their constructs of Christmas Day, thanks to Constantinople, um, Christmas Day must be the 25th of December. And then cultural practices in Europe had given 
another day, perhaps Boxing Day, known mm-hmm. as Boxing Day or a holiday. So those two days will be Daisy and Slave will not be working. They, um, sugar barons and the planters and the money delete will stop for Easter because within the European Christian, the Judeo-Christian calendar, Easter is really important. So sun, Sunday will then be followed by a thing called a, a and that, that following day may not have been called a bank holiday in the 17th, 18th century, but it'd be a day off. And of course, Good Friday. So there are a few days right. that we know. So that, and it is really crazy to think about if there are 365 days in a year and there are 52 Sundays off and possibly three holidays, that meant that enslaved people stopped 55 of 365 days in the year. 55 of 365 days. In the, in the year. year. So what did they do on those 55 days? Catch up with all of the activities they couldn't pursue for the six days. But another f- event also is created. We know that they would have come with constructs of harvesting, of of presenting their yams for the harvest. It might have been in December. Mm-hmm or presenting some sort of harvest festival, some activities in August, June. We are yet to fully look at what happened, but they come with notions of commemoration with the moons, the changing of the moons, commemorations of the harvest. So we know that even in in Barbados, not even, forgive me, in Barbados, these activities would have been held. Hopefully now that we have, and let me just do as a shout out to the Faculty of Culture, there's a lot more we can research because it's now time to unearth. So we know their activities. We see those who are living in Barbados speaking to these activities in beads and dancing and drumming and singing and something they call their plays. We know these are happening. So I begin my story of festivities there deliberately for grounding enslaved experience and bringing to the attention of your listeners that enslaved Africans and their peoples did not come with blank slates in their minds. It is not tabula rasa, (laughs) though it has been written as that and unfortunately continues to be projected as that in the 21st century. So that needs to be completely overturned. Now, what happens from a Eurocentric point of view, a Eurocentric point of view, at some point in time, and we do not yet know, there a festival that was held in England, which had several names. If it was in Scotland, it was called Kern, K-I-R-N. Mm-hmm. If it was in Southern England, it was called Harvest Home. At some point in time, planters returning to Barbados, Jamaica, St. Vincent, St. Lucia, starting to practice this festival of Harvest Home. And what it meant was that at the end of the harvest, this time the harvest is no longer yams, it's no longer maize, it's no longer cassava, whatever would have been the harvest within the continent of Africa, in the spaces of the African continent. No, it is this thing, sugar. Um, And if you live in the Caribbean, you're fully aware that there are seasons of sugar. You'd season, you plant the sugar cane or you cut the ratoons, the arrows grow, then you cut the cane, etc. And at the end of that, there's the end of a quote-unquote harvest. Somewhere along the line, those practices come about the Eurocentric construct of having harvest. This time, however, they bring with it, hey, you can have a day off. (laughs) 55 days, one more is a wonderful event. Practices evolve, but 
it practices, I've, I've written that it's more on the traditional construct of Batinian feast. When the, those in power grant the feast, those in power organize the feast, those in power state the date of the feast, those in power, very feudal, call the laborers to join mm. with them and enjoy the feast. Straight up feudal system, the lord and the lady of the manor will have the laborers sit with them and all will be said and done, happy, happy, happy. That seems to be what emerged with what was there before. We do not know how many times they drummed after finally cutting those final canes. We don't know, but we think it must have been because they were spotted drumming and dancing and singing way up in the 17th, late 17th century, 18th century. So enslaved peoples must have been drumming and singing. But we do know there was a practice. We know that the plantations, it's now been proven by historians like Henderson Carter, David Brown. At some point in time, if you were making rum, you made more money off the rum than off the sugar. The sugar <laughs> pit was you put it into for a dark day. So much money was made from rum. We also know that cultural practices evolved where planters gave rum as a gift. We talk about the history of why are we so all so drunk, etc. <laughs> and diabetic. That was yeah, sugar was given. Sugar, imagine uh, Professor Beckles has talked to this though, and he's written about this. Sugar was given as a wage, rum was given as a wage. And we now know that when finally that the, that official feast approached crop what becomes Harvest Home, that is thrown in. So, hey, the Lord and Lady of the Manor, let's call it Newton because we know it's happening mm -hmm. at Newton, have their plantation yard, throw open their plantation yard, bring all their laborers in. They roast a pig, they roast an ox. I've actually seen an ox being roasted in St. George. <laughs> um, at least not seen the ox, but seeing references to the mm -hmm. ox, Dr. Walton and his ox in 1858. And they drank for learning in 1858. So nice. we didn't even think that recently. That was there all the time before. Okay. And that happens. But it's, the activities are called Harvest Home. Right. So there's a transfer of the Southern England practice straight to the West Indies, straight into what would be Jamaica, because a lot is written on Jamaica, um, um, Harvest Home, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, Barbados. And off they go. So in one of the articles, I think you, you're smiling, so you've probably read it. One of my earliest articles, I was able to find um, evidence of this. Because one thing about one aspect of slavery that is horrific, but as a researcher, the accounting they put everything in the books. Mm -hmm. Every cent is accounted for, and they literally made they counted every cent. So, by still we are still in enslavement period is the eighteen twenties, and I find a ledger that says, "Hey, guess what? Payment for a top band and musicians for Harvest Home." So now they're enslaved. They're not being paid, but there's some professional artists. If the word professional has to be really looked at here, it means they're enslaved individuals who were also musicians right. who could be called upon to provide the music. And permitted to leave. And their... permitted to leave because then because of their skill, they're allowed to go or they're sent for. If you're the plantation owner, you're going to have your celebration. Hey, look, send for uh, Marcy and the troop and you write it up and you pay whatever little bit you pay. Right. I need to emphasize this aspect as well. It's not one festival. Okay. There are over 350 plantations in Barbados over the years, over 300 years. Each plantation had their windmill. 
Each windmill had the cane to be crushed into cane. Each plantation then would have to cut their canes. And when their canes were cut, that's possibly when you will have a celebration if the plantation chooses to. Right, because not everyone would have been. Not everyone would have been. And especially in the 18th, 19th century in slavery. Maybe later on in the 19th century, near early 20th century, there is a practice where plantations and neighboring plantations might gather together mm. and hold one, come on, cost cutting and hey, why not? Everybody over in, if you're in a particular parish, St. Andrew, and you all gather on a particular plantation. But what we do know, therefore, is that once the canes are cut, there should be a celebration. And the ev- I found them, given the evidence in the Journal of Museum, History. Museum. Mm-hmm. Museum history. That evidence is there. Where we can see tuck bands are being hired. We can see that there's a proliferation of rum giving. We can see that, um, yeah, eventually it's things like currants and, and raisins and all kinds <laughs> of things are showing up. So Those there's, are a, there's a realization of it. You know, we had to buy so many pounds of currants. So perhaps they're serving black cake or I don't know, some sort of cake, but they're serving cake. That then becomes Harvest Home. It means, therefore, in April, you could have Harvest Home. In May, you could have Harvest Home. Because it's going to happen when your plantation's canes are done. Are done. Okay. April, May, June, July, August, at least five different months of Harvest Home. At five different times of the year, according to when your canes are cut. Okay. That's the historical narrative we need to think in our heads by coming up with that then it brings us into the contemporary but before we go into contemporary just let me say one more thing mm-hmm. i was curious as to the name crop over right i never found an explanation but from going through the registers what i was able to publish and say is that at some point in time the accountants started calling it crop over um, the registers, the two words are not say, one. Two words are not one. Mm-hmm. They would start off in the yeah slavery would be harvest home, and I I was so thankful for accountants who could write really well, <laughs> and some could, and then there were some who hey I could be accused of scribbles as well, <laughs> but flourishes of H harvest home harvest home, and somewhere around the late nineteenth century, thirty years after slavery, I'm seeing the words crop over. I have argued in print, and I'm willing to have a, a discussion with anyone in print or in person. <laughs> but it seems that there, there is kind of a linguistic turn, <laughs> as they love to say, linguistic turn. At some point in time, you were cut, you were doing crop over, but the crop was over. So Harvest Home became crop over. Now we come to one of the burning questions I had when I really started to consider crop over and its origins. How could it be? that with so many colonies, French, Dutch, Spanish, and English in the West Indies, all with economies built on sugarcane and enslaved labor, that Barbados was the only one with a crop over celebration. Let's find out together as we continue our conversation with Dr. Marcia Burroughs in the next episode of our 166. I hope you'll join me. Our 166 was created and produced by me, Kim Howard. Mixing and editing was by Graham Johnson. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at R166. Until next time, get up good.